Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tari. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. It is commonly thought that violence, injustice and discrimination against religious minorities, especially in the Middle East, are a product of religious fundamentalism and myopia. Concomitantly, it is often argued that more of secularism and less of religion represents the solution to this problem. In her stunning new book, Religious Difference in a Secular Age, a Minority Report, Taba Mahmood, Professor of Anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley, brings such a celebratory view of secularism into fatal doubt. Through a careful and brilliant analysis, Mahmood convincingly shows that far from a solution to the problem of interreligious strife, political secularism and modern secular governance are in fact intimately entwined to the exacerbation of religious tensions in the Middle East. Focusing on Egypt and the experience of Egyptian Copts and Baha'is, Mahmoud explores multiple conceptual and discursive registers to highlight the paradoxical qualities of political secularism, arguing that majority-minority conflict in Egypt is less a reflection of the failure of secularism and more a product of secular discourses and politics, both within and outside the country. In our conversation, we touched on the salient features of this book, such as the concept of political secularism and its applicability to a context such as Egypt, the genealogy of minority rights and religious liberty in the Middle East, discourses of minority rights and citizenship in relation to the Egyptian Copts, the discourse of public order and the regulation of Baha'i religious identity and difference in Egypt, secularism, family law and sexuality, and the category of secularity and particular understandings of time, history and scripture brought into view by the controversy generated in Egypt by the novel Azazil. This theoretically rigorous book is also wonderfully written, making it particularly suitable for graduate and undergraduate courses on Islam, the Middle East, secularism, religion and politics, gender and sexuality, and theories and methods in religion. Here now is my conversation with Professor Sabah Mahmoud. Hello Sabah, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Uh, well, Sabah, as I was saying before we went on air, uh, such a thrill to read this book, uh, really such a stunningly well-written uh, book, which uh, will create multiple conversations and has given us so much to think about in relation to questions of secularism, uh, minority rights, and uh, related questions. So thank you so much for this excellent book, and I look forward to this conversation. Well, it's very kind of you. It's a pleasure to be here. So Sabah, we have a tradition on new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. Uh, we're very interested in the narrative of our authors, and you know many people would be familiar from the preface of your Politics of Piety book. For but for those who may not be, could you tell us a bit about how you became a scholar uh, interested in Islam and Muslim societies, and then uh, how did you come to write this particular project? Sort of a two-part question uh, to that. Yes. Um, well, I actually became interested in the study of uh, Islamic uh, societies, particularly thinking about the role of Islam in um, South Asia, but also the Middle East. Middle East became my focus ultimately, or has been for the last 20 years. Uh, primarily as a result of the transformation that happened in the uh, after the 
Iranian Revolution in 1979. As I write in my preface in Politics of Piety, I grew up in Pakistan and I grew up with this hope that uh, the nation state would be able to provide us um, a way of suturing religious differences, ethnic differences, and so on, and that our fu- the future of, uh, of post-colonial societies really was solidly grounded in the promise of uh, this, the secular state to create um, a, a polity of citizens who can overcome their differences. This, however, proved not to be true. Um, the revolution, the Iranian revolution of 1979, in my opinion, was the most important um, harbinger of a change where the secular ideology that we so much uh, uh, believed in and that uh, was actually seriously challenged. And there was instead um, a state that emerged that was religious, but at the same time claimed to be revolutionary and uh, even had notions of justice, as well as, of course, uh, you know, forms of political repression associated with it. So it was at that point that I started to um, really rethink where my, you know, my own thinking had been, where my own historical and political background had been and what was happening in the world. Then, of course, increasingly after the revolution, many, many uh, societies, whether in South Asia or the Middle East, turned to much more explicit forms of public religiosity, which was, again, a great surprise to many of uh, those uh, um, of my generation. And we usually tended to interpret this turn to religiosity as uh, nothing but sort of a backwardness of our societies uh, uh, that, you know, they, they were turning to Islam in order to deal with the collapse of, of uh, the post-colonial promise. To some extent, that is true, but I think it fails to recognize what are the forces, the, uh, the, the positive nature of the developments. By positive, I don't just simply mean good or bad, but what were the actual historical developments uh, that we had misread and that we needed to really think about other sorts of uh, forces that were important in... in um, in giving a new life to Islam, as it were. So that was the reason why I became interested in studying Muslim societies. Um, I could have worked on Pakistan, which is my, you know, my my country of my origin, but I decided to really go to the Middle East, um, and I worked in Egypt, and I've continued to work in Egypt since 1993 when I first went there. And the reason I was interested in going to a different place than South Asia was because I think, um, that uh, some of the major developments in Islam are actually happening in the Middle East, and we really need to understand how those developments therefore inform what is going on in other parts of the Muslim world, and partly because I thought that being in a in a society that I was not familiar with with would challenge me to think differently than what was my own proclivity. So as, as uh, to your question about... Um, uh, why I wrote, came to write this particular book. Um, well, one of I, it's, it's my second book. My first book was Politics of Piety, and Politics of Piety was really a study of of uh, of the Dawa movement in in the in the mosques of, of Cairo, and I was really interested in movements of moral reform that are not um, whose goal is not to uh, seize the agency of the state in order to make a society more Islamic, but instead actually transform society from the ground up. And the Dawa movement, the piety movement in, in Egypt was an example of that. 
In this book, I'm much more concerned about how the state itself transforms the way in which religion is practiced. So in a sense, I'm really turning my, if my first book was a focus, uh, was focused on, on movements of moral reform, which are to some extent take the facticity and the materiality of the modern state as a given, do not seek to challenge its dictates, but act, uh, try to function within its dictates and, and transform society from the ground up. In this book, I'm more interested in how the modern nation state, what I call the secular liberal state, has actually transformed the way that religion is practiced by majority and my, religious majority and minorities alike. So, so to begin with a broad question, you've already touched on the major theme of uh, this book. Uh, what is the central argument that you try to make in this book? Uh, could you briefly describe that argument and then we will have a chance to unpack that argument in the coming few questions? Well, um, as I uh, mentioned earlier, my interest um, my interest in this book is trying to understand what is the specific nature of the modern nation state and how it has impacted religious identity for majority and religious minorities alike. Now, the reason I was compelled to ask this question is because, as we all know, we are living at a time in um, world history where religious, the life of religi- religious minorities have increasingly come to be persecuted in Muslim-majority societies, um, whether it be the Middle East, South and Southeast Asia, or elsewhere. And it is assumed that the reason religious minorities have come to be increasingly persecuted in these regions is because Islam is the main uh, culprit there, that it is really Islam is incapable, quintessentially incapable of coming to terms with religious difference. And therefore, and it has a fundamentalist intolerant core which has come to the fore and what you that's why religious minorities are persecuted. I really wanted to actually um, think about this charge, and I think the only way that I could have thought about it is to really go to the modern history of the nation-state and try to see um, how Islamic precepts, Islamic concepts, Islamic principles, Islamic values have actually come to inform uh, the practices of the modern nation-state and its, and its governance of religious difference. Uh, how they have been transformed and incorporated into the modern logic of governance. And so in order to actually understand the why religious minorities are persecuted today, we have to look not just at Islam um, and its its political history, but also what how mod- the modern nation state has actually played a crucial role. In, in the way that religious difference has come to be, religious differences have come to be exacerbated and polarized. So let us uh, talk a bit about uh, your conceptualization of the category of political secularism, which seems to be a central thematic pivot of this book. Uh, how do you approach this category uh, in this book? And especially if you could talk a bit about, uh, you know, possible objections that could be raised of applying this category in the context of Egypt. You mentioned in your book, that, uh, you know, there is a sense in which with a place like Egypt, secularism there is imagined to be either incomplete or inadequate or inapplicable. And you very convincingly respond to those possible objections uh, to, 
push us to think about the idea of political secularism in the context of Egypt. So could you elaborate a bit how this category works in your book and how it is uh, mobilized in the context of Egypt? Yes, of course. Um, so, uh, you know, as I say in my book, I'm, I'm really very <clears throat> deeply indebted to the work of Talal Asad, who has really made us rethink this idea of secularism as simply a doctrine of the separation of church and state. Um, instead, um, he has argued that, in fact, secularism is uh, particularly political secularism is actually the modern state's regulation of religious life rather than simply the separation of religion and state. And of course, at this point, he's not alone in making this argument. There's uh, there's a field called secular studies, uh, which uh, which has in which a number of different uh, philosophers, historians, and anthropologists have shaped this field, including the work of people like Charles Taylor who also argues to think of political secularism as simply the separation of church and state is to really not understand the transformative uh, character of secularism and, and what he calls, um, it's not just a, um, this is sort of a very minimalist conception of, of uh, secularism and secularism is far more robust and encompassing. And so the part of the attempt of the field of secular studies has been to try to really develop um, it, it, again, in, a, in its in its materiality and its ideological uh, formations, what what secularism entails. Now, uh, so one of the basic premises of my book is that political secularism requires a constant intervention of the state into the religious sphere. Um, and this is an interesting. This generates an interesting contradiction because the the secular state also promises to regard religion as as a sacrosanct domain of private life in which which should not be interfered in. So uh, rather than consider uh, simply this 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 as a contradiction, that is the principle of state neutrality towards religion. Um, and then it, the state's constant propensity to interfere in religion, rather than regard these two uh, tendencies internal to the secular state as simply contradictions, um, my work actually argues for trying to think of how generative this, 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 uh, uh, these two elements of political secularism are. So indeed, on the one hand, the principle of state neutrality toward re- religion does stand in tension, with the constant management of religious life through the agency of the sovereign state. So that's true. But at the same time, I argue that this does not mean that therefore secularism collapses or its internal contradictions make it an unviable uh, political arrangement. Rather, my argument is that it's precisely this tension that is very generative of political secularism itself. Uh, So every time the state interferes, in the domain of religious life, there is a call for greater neutrality of the state, which actually re-establishes this, the, the secular state as the promise of, of religious liberty and religious equality. And so it's a constant oscillation between, on the one hand, the propensity of the modern state to regulate religious life and thereby interfere into the privacy of the religious domain, and then on the other hand, um, it's 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 claim that is actually it is neutral towards religion and therefore 
does not interfere and should not interfere into the religious domain. Now, um, of course, this, this feature of secularism is, is evident in all sorts of societies, um, including societies, Western societies, but also Islamic societies. And as a result, one can, only, one can think of, for example, of uh, the constant debate within, within, uh, within the United States, whether um, the re- uh, prayer should be allowed in public schools or the idea that the state should actually protect religious institutions or give them uh, material support, um, uh, uh, economic support, or should it actually abstain from that? Similarly, in France, you have uh, the situation where, despite the principle of laicite, the state also then must regulate religious attire of its minority population. And so the question arises whether the state should do that, and is it abrogating religious freedoms over its minorities, or does it have an, an actual stake in, and, and a legitimate stake in regulating that form, uh, the religious expression of, its, of religious minorities? So this debate is never really settled. It, it always actually fuels <coughs> and informs <coughs> all modern societies. Now, what's interesting is that when we come to, uh, to the Middle East or when we come to Muslim societies, when these, when these debates unfold uh, about whether the state should legitimately interfere in religious life or should it actually abstain from religious life, we often regard that to be an uh, expression of the incomplete secularism of these societies. And... Uh, um, now, I, I would say that, of course, the de- way in which this debate unfolds, the debate about whether the, the state should interfere in religious life, if so, to what extent and where and how, clearly it takes different forms in different societies. It even differs across the United States versus France. For example, people say that France uh, actually could have uh, banned the veil in a way that it would never be banned in the United States. Uh, so there are clearly dif- differences across different context, national contexts, but nobody actually says the U.S. is therefore not secular or, 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 or France is not secular. They say actually that this, the, these, 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 these debates and these struggles happen within the context of secularism. But when it comes to Muslim societies, we often say that they are not secular. And so this is, this is the premise that I really question in this book. And uh, there are various ways in which I question it, but I will just mention a couple here. One is that I would say that the very um, grammar, the, the, the political grammar of the modern nation state is actually secular. And it is secular in, uh, and it is secular in a way that it is globally shared. So, for example, the the very fundamental um, promise of the modern nation state to treat all its citizens equally, regardless of their religious differences, is a is a foundational promise of the nation state. the The promise of civil and political equality, regardless of the religious affiliation of the citizenry of a nation. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that this promise is always delivered uh, uncomplicatedly. It's never been delivered in any history. You look at the United States, for example. Um, you know, the promise of civil and political equality for blacks took a long time, and it took a and it took a struggle, a civil rights struggle, to actually deliver that. Um, so there is a, so, but the, the the normative premise of the state that it will 
grant civil and political equality to all its citizens, regardless of racial difference, gender difference, uh, religious difference, class difference, um, is actually an impetus for movements to demand greater rights from the state. Now, I, I really focus on the question of religious difference because secularism itself is a, is a preoccupation with religion. It is um, necessarily tied to the question of, of religious difference. And so what we find is that in this, in this very important sense, the very, the, the, the very promise of civil and political equality by the modern nation state is, is actually, is, is precisely the way in which the, the legal grammar, the political grammar of, of secularism is shared across the Western and the non-Western divide. So this is the first way in which I would say it would be wrong to, to think, therefore, uh, that these states are not secular. Um, of course, the, the, there are all, all sorts of ways in which this promise is abrogated and it's not, not necessarily delivered. But it is precisely challenged by uh, communities, Christians, non-Muslims, and so on, to say, well, we must be treated equally in the eyes of the law because the very, uh, and, and that struggle is premised in the aspiration to religious equality, which the secular state, the modern nation state, makes it makes it possible as a political imaginary, um, and so that and and of course you do it through going to law and through political movements and so on and so forth. So this is this is one reason why I think it's very important to understand how and why political secularism pertains. To Middle Eastern societies, a second way in which I would I would say it's very important is uh, the the very notion of temporality, um, a secular temporality as empty homogenous time, uh, which has become uh, which is the bedrock of the the working of the modern nation state. Um, the modern nation state does not necessarily work on, a, on an apocalyptic imaginary or an end of the world imaginary, an Armageddon imaginary. It 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 all modern nation states are premised on this idea that temporality itself is empty and homogenous and progressively uh, unfolding towards a future that is uh, that is indeterminable and unknown and all historic and present and future and past events are actually unfold within this within this uh, uh, horizon of temporality so and that of course is is being very transformative of uh, of how religion is practiced today uh, by by all sorts of people not just uh, participants in the state but common people as well um so i would say that uh, these are some of the ways in which i think uh, secularism pertains to to uh, to middle east muslim societies and middle eastern societies and finally i would say the uh, secular epistemology, the 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 notion of cause and effect, uh, the that those are also um, extant in in modern societies, and they might exist cheek to jowl or in parallel with other notions of uh, with other epistem- uh, forms of epistemology. But they are certainly very important. Have transformed the way in which people have to argue the the presence or absence or the validity or legitimacy of uh, of uh, other epistemologies. So in the first chapter of your book, you conduct a rather masterful uh, genealogy of the concepts of uh, minority rights and religious liberty in the context of the Middle East. And I have a specific and a broader question in regards to that uh, genealogy. Let me begin with a specific one. Uh, 
which is, you know, as is the hallmark of uh, excellent genealogies, uh, in your book also one finds these great moments where conventional logic is really turned uh, upside down in, in rather remarkable ways. And I want to ask you about your discussion of uh, Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, uh, the main part of which reads, everyone has a right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. And you make the point that oftentimes this is uh, thought of as a, a major secular achievement. Uh, but you show that this article, in fact, uh, was intimately connect- connected to certain religious histories, and especially some evangelical Christian histories, and that this privileges uh, this idea of uh, uh, the freedom of religion in this article, privileges certain notions of religiosity, which are particularly amenable to modern secular logics of life. So could you explain that argument uh, specifically with regards to Article 18 that you make in this chapter? Yes, of course. So, uh, you know, the, I, Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is primary fo- primary focus is the individual. And religion is largely understood to be a matter of private belief. And so the article declares, <clears throat> and I will... <clears throat> I just quote here verbatim, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief and freedom either alone or in community with others and in public or private to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, teaching, practice, worship, and observance. So there are two really uh, important um, um, elements to this. One is religion is understood to be primarily a matter of conscience. And by virtue of the uh, of of the emphasis on conscience, there is also a simultaneous emphasis on uh, religion as as uh, as part of an individual's uh, private practice. So uh, so it is the individual individual believer who is the holder of this right. And where is the proper locus of religion? If the pro- proper locus of religion is his thought and his conscience, the interiority of the individual himself. And that's what the, that this Article 18 of UDHR actually gives protection to. Now, what's interesting, of course, is this idea of religion as a matter of belief, which is purely an individual attribute, is something um, that was first introduced into the Middle East um, by the missionaries, by by Christian missionaries um, uh, in the in 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 the nineteenth century, and um, this is this is a of course a very specific conception that came, uh, that that comes from Protestant Christianity. Protest- Protestantism has already secured this notion of religion in Europe, largely through the defeat of the Catholic Church. And uh, it becomes ascendant. Um, it becomes ascendant, uh, particularly in the discourses of the missionaries who flood the Middle East in the 19th century from France, from England, from the United States. And what they encounter is a very serious uh, set of impediments to um, uh, to, uh, to to their missionary activities, particularly the attempts to convert Muslims, Jews, and Christians uh, by, by, by Christians, I mean non-Protestant Christians, to this, this notion of, of uh, Protestant Christianity. Uh, you know, Coptic Orthodox Church ends up resisting this notion as much as Muslims do, as much as the Jewish inhabitants of the region do. And, um, and of course, uh, the, the, the counter notion of religion that, that, is, that was at the time prevalent in the region, and I think 
to some extent it's still uh, viable today in the Middle East is this notion that actually religion is a form of collectivity, a collective practice, that it resides in one's uh, not just an attribute of the individual as in his conscience, but it is a form of uh, sociality, it's a form of uh, relationality, it is embedded and made possible through one's, uh, uh, through one's community. And so um, at this point, of course, what the Protestant missionaries preached was this idea that, um, that they, 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 they actually thought that by emphasizing the individual nature of, the, of, the, of religious conscience, what they were also working against were the interdictions um, against conversion. Hence, the importance placed in Article 18 on this, on this notion that it's not just to, uh, that, that Article 18 includes not just freedom to believe, but freedom to change one's religion or belief. The Protestant missionaries' notion uh, was that if you really, if religion was made to be a matter of conscience and individual um, uh, deliberation, then it would be much easier for for the for Christians and Jews and Muslims of the region to actually be brought over and accept the truth of Protestant Christianity. And uh, in fact, by emphasizing the individual, what they were severing was the relationship with the with the communal forms of religion, with the communal control of religion, and of course the weight of tradition and culture and holding back the what they thought would be a rational decision on the part of any individual to embrace a higher form of Christianity, which is, in their opinion, Protestant Christianity. Now, what's interesting is that it is this notion uh, that was mobilized by the Protestant missionaries that eventually made it into Article 18. And uh, the history that I provide is a history that, you know, some of the European scholars to whom I'm indebted there, I'm tracing their account here, who give us a ba- uh, the background uh, background of this of the movement that actually was very very active in getting Article 18 passed, and not surprisingly, the the movement that was behind Article 18 was was the Christian uh, uh, missionary movement, which uh, which thought that uh, and they, they they thought that by passing this individualized notion of of religious belief um, and in encoding in it the right to change one's religion, uh, regardless of what the communal cost would be, um, that by encoding this within the within Article 18, what they would actually also mitigate against were the were this very strict prohibitions that were placed against um, prohibition, uh, sorry, uh, to religious conversion within the region. And, and that is the history I trace. So what seems to be actually a very secular conception of, uh, of, uh, of Article 18 of UDHR turns out to be the accomplishment of very broad um, Christian movement um, that was mobilized uh, between Britain, France, and the United States. So let us uh, talk a bit about the broader argument of this chapter, uh, which is that the discourse of religious liberty and minority rights, you argue, uh, these are not universal moral values, but rather you uh, push us to think about these ideas as what you call strategies of secular governance that are aimed at constantly managing and regulating a difference of different uh, kinds, religious, ethnic, cultural, and so on. So uh, how are the concepts of religious liberty and minority rights uh, entwined with uh, strategies of secular governance? And how have the uh, shifts, the conceptual shifts in these ideas 
over time in the Middle East uh, impacted and informed uh, political and religious categories? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a complicated question. And I, uh, I sort of work through this uh, answer through over several chapters. So I'm only going to be able to give a very uh, brief uh, version of an answer to you. Um, so let's, let's, let's just take minority rights first. So what's interesting about, uh, and when I say minority rights, I mean specifically minority uh, rights of religious minorities. So the, the concept of the rights of religious minorities um, we tend to think that, you know, it, it simply is talking about a demographics, uh, a certain demographic, a certain kind of a population, um, which is small in number as compared to the majority religion. And therefore, all it does is, is to provide them a set of protections that, or the state extends them a certain set of protections to this demographic group. We do not think of minority rights as uh, as a discourse that actually very much created the very uh, groups and minorities in the, in the name of which then it subsequently speaks. So this idea that this discourse is actually a formative discourse rather than simply a discourse of protection is what I, I really want to highlight in this book. Now, when the, uh, and, and, and certainly the idea of minority uh, itself is a very modern concept um, and... Uh, it really owes itself to uh, very different meanings in the modern uh, period than, for example, when it was first mobilized in the pre-modern period. Now, the idea of the right of religious minorities was actually initially introduced by Western Christian empires within the Ottoman territories as a means of actually gaining a foothold within the Ottoman territories by claiming that um, the, the Western Christian empires were actually um, the proper uh, representatives of the religious minorities that existed within the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the Ottoman Empire did not necessarily resist this um, uh, at, the, at the height of its power. It actually, many of the religious uh, Christian communities, for example, in the Ottoman period came to be rep- have powerful representatives within in, in Western um, Christian Empire. So, for example, <coughs> The French were responsible for the protection of the Catholics in, uh, in the Holy Land. Similarly, um, uh, the Orthodox, Orthodox Christians were understood to be, um, not the entire Orthodox community, but segments of the Orthodox Christian community were supposed to, uh, their patrons were the Russian Orthodox uh, Church and so on and so forth. Uh, now, this notion of minority was actually very different than the one that came to be uh, instituted, uh, for example, during the time of the League of Nations, when minority rights really becomes a very important um, part of the discourse of uh, modern um, international uh, governance and not just simply national governance. And the League of Nations um, famously, in its the creation of its minority treaty, Actually requires um, that uh, it that nation states that were increasingly emerging as a result of the breakup of empires uh, be held accountable and to a national uh, to an international institution such as the League of Nations to be able to uh, to be able to ensure that the rights of the minorities are protected. Now, what's interesting to me in all of this history is that. Increasingly, as the empires dissolve and they, they, and, and independent nation states are created, 
European powers use the discourse of minority rights in order to uh, stipulate conditions on the on the sovereignty that these nation states are going to be able to practice. Of course, none of these breakaway states, whether it was, you know, various breakaway states, uh, could not actually require the Western European powers, such as France, Britain, Germany, and so on, to, to have similar, to be subject to similar sort of conditions to their own minorities, right? So minority rights, in, uh, what I argue in this book, has always been a, um, uh, it's, it, it's, its place in international law has always been subject to the inequality of sovereignty between the West and the non-West. It is always Western European powers that have had the, uh, that have actually required that non-Western states or the states that had lost in, in various wars be, be subject to, to minority rights conditions, but they have never been actually implemented in their own countries. And this is clear, for example, in the case of the United States, it's in regards to Native Americans or Blacks, in the case of uh, Britain, in regards to the Welsh and the Irish, um, and, and, and the French, of course, uh, uh, to this day say that they have no minorities that exist within their national borders. They won't even admit to the existence of minorities. So I was interested in how minority rights discourse from its inception in the, uh, in the Middle East has been indebted to this logic of unequal sovereignty between the West and the non-West and how that has continued to actually um, structure the exercise of minority rights um, until the present. Now, uh, what's interesting is that as large parts of the Middle East fell under the control of colon- Western colonial powers, uh, they... Uh, they brought in a very different uh, conception of religious difference than the one that had existed under Ottoman rule. And in many instances, European powers actually uh, created uh, new forms of religious distinction in the, in the, in, in the colonies than, than, than had existed before by granting new religious sects the right to, uh, by, by actually, I'm sorry, by, by according um, legal recognition and state recognition to religious sects that had never been recognized before. So, for example, in the in the Greater Levant region, what you see is the emergence of the uh, of the Alevis, the Shiites, the uh, the Ismailis, and the Druze being recognized for the first time as religious sects. And when they're recognized as religious sects um, for the first time, they're they're actually given a stake in the in the in the political power of the of the state. Um, and so it's uh, and and secondly and more importantly, at least in regards to the to my to the argument of my book, one of the ways that legal uh, recognition is conferred on these sects is by assigning them independent religion-based family laws. Many of these communities, religious communities, had no independent uh, religion-based family laws, and those had to be invented anew. So there is ways in which religious difference comes to be uh, tethered to the the state, and uh, increasingly a centralized state, not of the kind that that the structure of empire was, and thereby minority increasingly, the, the very concept of minority comes to be transformed and it comes to be calibrated to a very new rationality of political rule than the rationality 
of uh, political rationality of empires. So that's one way in which um, I think it's, it's, it's uh, minority rights is a very transformative discourse and it's very much tied to both national te- technologies of governance, but also international technologies of governance. And, um, and, and ultimately, and then of course, religious liberty is, is, is a slightly, follows a just slightly different trajectory, but religious liberty also, uh, as I, as we were mentioning earlier, the right to religious liberty was first introduced um, um, by uh, by the missionaries uh, who wanted to institute this very privatized conception of religiosity to be able to break up communal forms of religiosity that were extant in the Middle East. And, and uh, But the right to religious liberty then eventually came to be encoded in the laws of most of the nation states of the Middle East. And uh, and ironically, um, the the emphasis on 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 the individual uh, was transformed from just simply um, being a, a you know a, a colonial ploy or a or a missionary ploy to actually being considered as a founding right of each citizen. So in many nation states of the Middle East, what you have is that religious liberty is conceived on the individualist model, and yet. Um, of course, uh, the social life of these society, of uh, uh, the social life in these in these nation states, is obviously in the form of religiosity that is uh, that is practiced is not just one of individualist kind. It also has many other forms, communal forms, and so the two sit side by side. And so this often occurs when and the tensions between them come to the fore when we start thinking about whether religious liberty is to be. Uh, is something that only an individual holds, or religious liberty is something that communities can lay claim to as well. And so the kinds of protections the state would extend to an individual would be very different than the kinds of protections they would uh, they would extend to communal forms of religious life, such as you know schools and uh, churches and other forms of uh, collective. Um, uh, collective uh, forms of of uh, sociality that religion also entails. Now, in the next uh, chapter of the book, which is uh, titled "To Be or Not to Be a Minority," uh, you draw out and uh, really show in some very interesting ways uh, the inherent contradictions uh, of uh, uh, that haunt liberal secularism and the liberal secular state. Primarily, uh, the idea that uh, the liberal secular state has to remain neutral to religion while also seeking to erase religious inequality. So the idea of religious difference is very much encoded into the grammar of secular governance, as you uh, pointed to uh, earlier also. So uh, how do the various discourses around minority rights and citizenship in Egypt, especially in relation to uh, Egyptian Copts, uh, brings into focus this inherent uh, contradiction of secularism? And uh, a related question to that uh, is uh, one of the fundamental arguments that you make here is that the majority-minority conflict in Egypt uh, is less a reflection of the failure of secularism in Egypt and more a product of secular discourses and politics, both within and outside the country. So if you could combine these two threads of uh, argument that you make in Chapter 2 and explain that a bit uh, for our listeners. So one of the fundamental uh, features of the modern nation-state is that it requires um, the citizen to set aside his or her fealty and loyalty to um, uh, forms of belonging, whether they be religious, communal, ethnic, and so on, 
and to set them aside in favor of uh, pledging his allegiance, his or her allegiance to the nation state. So, uh, and this is this is precisely at the root of this is this is sort of the fundamental requirement uh, on the basis of which then civil and political equality can be extended um, by by the nation state. Now, the the promise to civil and political equality that the modern nation state makes possible is itself predicated on the idea that the state will be indifferent to the religious belonging or ethnic or racial belonging of the citizen. In other words, everybody will be equal in the eyes of the law and will not be treated uh, differently um, based on whether the citizen belongs. For my purposes, I'm really primarily concerned with, with religion, so the state would not really be distributing rights and obligations differently based on the religious proclivities or the religious belonging of the citizen. So the claim to civil and political equality, in other words, is itself premised on the state being indifferent to the religious um, attributes of the individual. Now, what's interesting about this is, is of course, that that um, and that even though um, religion is supposedly banished from the political life or the political calculus of the state, religious inequalities or religious life itself is not actually banned or made to disappear. Religion continues to be a very important and vibrant part of civil society and private life. And at the same time, religious inequalities are supposed to, uh, are, are also continue to prosper within the sphere of civil society. Now, the most interesting theorist of this was, of course, um, Karl Marx, who in his essay on the Jewish question, uh, very strongly posited a critique of the idea of the secular liberal state against Bruno Bauer, who said that uh, that the only way that Jews can get equality at the time um, in in Western Europe was that if uh, if the if the state became neutral in regard to to the religion, whether it be Christianity, Judaism, any other, Marx replied, "Well, but this is impossible to do so because this is only a very partial indifference. You can say that the state has become politically indifferent." to the religious attributes of Jews, but fundamentally the inequality uh, continues to prosper within the social life of the polity. And the state, by virtue of having made religious in, religion itself a matter of neutrality, propose, that does not actually then try to uh, adjudicate or in any way ameliorate religious inequalities. And he drew a very strong parallel between religion and private property, just as the state says it's indifferent to private property, the state says it's indifferent to the religious attributes of its citizens. But by, by virtue of making itself indifferent, what it does is it removes itself from any um, uh, from 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 any responsibility for the inequalities that are then allowed to continue to prosper in the private life of the citizenry. Now, what's interesting is while we accept this uh, analysis of Western Europe by Marx um, and and many social theorists kind of pay homage of the, to this, what we don't recognize is a very similar kind of a process and a rationality unfolds in the Middle East as well. And this is what I try to show through the history of Egypt. 
So, for example, in 1923, when the first constitution of Egypt was being debated, um, uh, when, when, when Egypt was still under, under British control, but there was the possibility that the Egyptians would get independence, and when they did get independence, they would have their own constitution, there was a very interesting debate that was that uh, that unfolded at the time. Many of the uh, participants of the constitute on the constitutional committee argued that the state should actually take responsibility for the Muslim and non-Muslim inequality that characterized Egypt at the time, and they should do so by making provisions within the constitution that would allow for special protections for religious minorities, including giving them a proportionate representation in the government, in, in, in public office, uh, and also extending specific kinds of protections to their institutions um, that, uh, uh, that the majority did not enjoy, precisely because the minority religion was in some ways historically at a disadvantage as compared to Muslims. Now, the opposition to this idea came not only from, you know, um, uh, extreme Muslims, but most, uh, most eloquently, the objection was voiced by um, secularists, both Muslims and Copts, who argued that, in fact, if the state was to address religious inequality through constitutional provisions, what it was, in fact, doing was to uh, was enshrining religion and religious identity as a, as a politically salient category. Now, this this was uh, so. Of course, the the irony in all of this, the paradox that is in all of this is is really very foundational to the very structure and the promise of the secular liberal state. The secular liberal state, for on the one hand, argues that it it is indifferent to religion, but on the other hand, religious inequalities are allowed to prosper precisely because the state is, is indifferent. So if the laws of a country are supposed to address inequalities, ameliorate, um, uh, solve the religious inequalities, then religion was ultimately have to be thematized in the laws of the country. And yet uh, the secular liberal state, by virtue of saying that it's neutral, cannot accommodate that regulation. Now, and yet, and despite this, despite this, this uh, supposed impasse, Majority religious values, in fact, parade as as values of the nation. So it, this is true just as equally of uh, of uh, of Egypt as it's it's true of most Western European countries. The the national norms of the country are actually predicated on the majoritarian norms of the country. So just as the Jews in Western Europe found themselves uh, uh, having to uh, deal with the majoritarian norms that in the name of the nation were were being touted as secular, but they were in fact Christian. The Christians of, of Egypt also found themselves confronted with majoritarian norms, which are in fact Islamic, but were touted as nothing more than the norms of the, of the nation itself, as if they were not religious. So what's really surprising is, when uh, in the passage of the 1923 constitution that actually refused uh, the principle of proportionate representation for, min- for, for, for the minority, for Coptic Christians, that same constitution also declared Islam to be the religion of the state. And um, many um, Coptic leaders of the time who regarded themselves to be secular embraced that notion and they said... <coughs> 
<clears throat> that this was this was by virtue of the fact that Islam was a national attribute. This was really representative this, uh, of, of, of them as Egyptians as much as it was representative of Muslims, uh, Egyptian Muslims. So we find very similar kinds of conundrums and problems emerging across uh, these different national contexts, across the European and the Middle Eastern context. And the structure of these debates are very similar. So in the chapter that you're mentioning, I actually try to show the similarity of debates between what the Copts confronted in the 1920s in Egypt and what the, uh, what the European Jews had to counter, particularly in Western Europe, in terms of wanting special protections for their institutions and at the same time being denied that in the name of uh, secular civil pol- and political equality. Now, another uh, conceptual register through which you make the central argument of uh, the paradoxes of political secularism uh, is uh, through that of uh, family law, gender and sexuality. Uh, and uh, uh, one of the main arguments that you make here is that secularism and sexuality are intimately entwined. Uh, so could you explain that uh, particular argument, that conceptual argument that you make? And uh, what have been the implications of the attempted secular relegation of uh, family and sexuality to the private sphere for the discourse on Coptic Muslim relations, especially when it comes to questions of gender? and the status of Coptic women in Egypt. Uh, If you could uh, elaborate a bit on uh, this nexus between sexuality, law, and secularism that you explore uh, in this chapter of the book, the next one. Okay. Um, So, uh, again, this is a complicated argument, and I'm going to only be able to touch upon it very briefly. But um, one of the... You know, as we all know that there are the religion-based family laws continue to persist in in many Middle Eastern countries, um, and of course others as well, um, such as uh, India and uh, Israel and so on. And uh, so, uh, religion-based family law is understood, at least in the context of the Middle East, to be. Um, uh, uh, a product of the fundamental importance that family um, has always enjoyed in the Sharia. In other words, the existence of religion-based family law today is understood to be a a remnant of an earlier pre-modern system in which religion and morality and family were deeply intertwined. And therefore, and to make them distinct today is considered to be an impossible task because of the religiosity, inherent religiosity of these countries. Um, my book shows uh, through the work, uh, through, you know, actually analyzing many of the historians' work, uh, uh, works, that family law itself is a modern invention. Family law is, uh, it did not exist as a separate critical domain in, uh, in classical Sharia. It was cobbled together from various kinds of uh, various forms of uh, juridical um, bodies and came to occupy uh, the status of an an independent juridical uh, domain only in the modern period. And so it had to be constructed anew. And so neither the, the family law nor the concept of the family to which it, uh, uh, for, which it is supposed to protect is actually in any way a historical or primordial. It is actually a modern construct. And the family as a unit 
of, uh, of the reproduction of the nation is what really drives the engine and is the driving force for how family, the centrality of family law and how it comes to be conceived. Now, what's interesting is that, um, this, this idea that the, and, and, and remember that, uh, that family law itself is understood to be an attribute of private law. It's, a, it's understood to, it is not part of public law, but it's part of po- private law. And so uh, what's interesting is that this, this, this idea that family, the family itself is part of, of the private domain it goes hand in hand actually with the, with the, uh, with the concept also of, of uh, the privatization of religion and the privatization of sexuality. In other words, it is only under the modern nation state that religion, family, and sexuality come to be regulated through private law and, uh, and relegated to the private sphere as the domain over which the state nonetheless will, will actually um, be sovereign. And so my argument in, in a nutshell in this chapter is that it is precisely once religion, family, and sexuality come to be delegated uh, collectively to the private sphere in the modern period that their political and legal fates become intertwined in a manner that they were never intertwined in the, in the pre-modern period. And so um, one example of this is the way in which uh, the regulation of of uh, sexuality by religious bodies becomes to occupy such an important uh, force in the in the identity of those of those uh, of those religions. You see this, um, you know, this this. It is only in the recent in the modern period that you suddenly have a sense. That in order for the integrity of a, of religious principles of any community to be understood as sacrosanct and and primordial, they need to be actually understood as pertaining to sexuality in particular. So you get these constant debates about whether they are about the veil or about contraception or about abortion or about um, uh, religious conversion. That you have the sense that really. Um, the reason this is the, 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 the sexuality is important is because sexuality itself is the linchpin of religious morality. So sexuality comes to be linked to religious morality in consequential ways in a, in a, in a far more protected sense, in a far more, um, uh, it's much more, comes to be much more closely intertwined than it was in the modern period. Now, one of the repercussions of this is the way in which the the debate about religious conversion and religious intermarriage has really proceeded in in uh, in Egypt. And so, my chapter actually looks at uh, how struggles over the religious demographics of each community, particularly the struggle over the conversion. Um, over the loss of Coptic Christians through conversion to Islam comes to be played out in the domain of, of family and sexuality and particularly over the bodies of women. And so I try to actually think about the overvaluation of women's bodies um, in the battles over interreligious conversion and interreligious marriage by going back to this history of family law and trying to think, when is it historically that religion, family, and sexuality come to be as tightly intertwined as they are today? 
So, uh, in the next chapter, you uh, shift your focus uh, to the regulation of uh, the Baha'i uh, religious identity and difference. And the key category that becomes central to your analysis there is the idea of uh, public order. Uh, so, a couple of questions uh, in relation to that line of inquiry. Uh, one is, how does the notion of public order inform the secular re- uh, regulation of religious difference and minority rights? And the other thing that I found particularly fascinating in this chapter is that you conduct a comparative analysis of Egyptian court rulings and judgments from the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, what theoretical purchase uh, does this comparison uh, afford you? Does it uh, provide you? Well, I might. Uh, what I will do is I will take your second question first. Um, you know, when I started to, um, I was again because the book is really trying to think about what is unique about the Egyptian regulation of religious difference given its particular history and what is, what are its features, uh, what are the features of the regulation of religious difference that are shared globally. I was really struck at how the regulation of um, the express, the regulation of the manifestation of religious beliefs of minorities took very, very strikingly similar forms in Europe versus Egypt. And I, I only came to realize this fairly late into the project. Um, I did not expect to find this. Um, so I was, for example, when I was doing my fieldwork in, in 2008 in Egypt, the debate on, 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 um, on the right of Baha'is to actually display their religion publicly was really at, 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 uh, at its peak. And, our, and as I started to read some of the decisions the, by the courts regarding Baha'is, I was really struck by the fact that many of these decisions uh, argued that the Baha'is were free to believe in whatever they wanted to believe. And, and what was being regulated by the Egyptian state was the manifestation of their religious belief. Now, this seemed really odd to me because the state itself well, uh, uh, Egyptian state basically bans uh, the Baha'i religion. And yet at the same time, um, the Baha'is are also considered to be citizens of, of Egypt. So by virtue of being Baha'is, they do not therefore become non-citizens of Egypt. They can have, they are supposed to theoretically enjoy the same privileges civil and, of civil and political rights. And yet, um, their 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 religion is also banned, so the courts have to to constantly try to defend this very impossible notion that on the one hand Baha'is cannot practice their religion, but on the other hand they are they can at the same time hold their religious beliefs. And the 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 legal concept by which the courts do so is through the concept of public order. And they say basically, so and the notion of right of religious liberty. So these are the two very consequential notions. One is the way that they define the right to religious liberty, and the other is the way that they define public order. So the courts, Egyptian courts, have come to argue that the Baha'is are free to believe in whatever they want to believe, as long as they do not um, manifest their beliefs in public whether in the form of having public prayers or in the form of having public institutions and temples of worship or in the most extreme case, 
that um, they declare themselves to be Baha'is on their national identity cards, since all Egyptian national identity cards require um, that citizens declare their religion, then Baha'is, by virtue of writing that they are Baha'is, are being told that they are manifesting their religious beliefs, because this is a public manifestation. And the, and and so uh, then, then this is where the second concept comes in, which is the concept of public order. The Egyptian state says, well, you have freedom of belief. The state is not impinging on your belief. We are only impinging on the manifestation of your religious belief. And the reason we can do so is because um, the state has the right to regulate any manifestation of any public manifestation of any practice as long as it contradicts the identity of the state it's it's uh, it's it, and it's and its national norms and because the national norms of egypt are muslim and their national identity is muslim therefore by virtue of the fact that bahais religion was never recognized in islam therefore requires that we do not allow bahai religious practices to be have any manifest public manifestation now, this seemed to me sort of when I first started to look at this legal jurisprudence, I mean, this jurisprudence, I just thought this was this was clearly a very uh, clear um, sort of expression of the non-secularity of the Egyptian state. They were just using secular concepts of the right to religious liberty and public um, uh, public uh, uh, public order in order to really institute what are ultimately Islamic and religious practices and religious norms. To my great surprise, I found within the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights very similar kinds of reasoning. In, of course, and and this European Court of Human Rights uh, uh, has issued a number of of rulings in regard to religious minorities, um, particularly Muslim minorities in living in European countries, where, uh, for example, the 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 veil is banned, uh, precisely utilizing very similar kinds of arguments. So, for example, when the, when the French banned the veil, uh, many Muslims took this to the European Court of Human Rights as this, uh, as this an abrogation, that this was an abrogation of the right to religious liberty. And the European Court of Human Rights upheld the French state's right to regulate, uh, the, to ban the veil in public precisely based on these very similar arguments. Argument number one being that the Muslims were actually free to believe in whatever they chose to believe to the extent that the veil was a manifestation of their religious belief in, in public. The, the state had the legitimate right to ban that expression because it contradicted the national identity of the French state, which was considered to be secular and so any expression of religious uh, um, any expression of of religious belief in in material form in the public was understood to contra, uh, contravene the public identity the national identity of the french state which is understood to be secular and it contradicted the norms the the national norms of france which were understood to be secular and therefore a religious so um it is only when i found the similarity uh, between these different very different national contexts, very different kinds of debates that I began to think of the, the, the extent to which public order and the right to religious liberty, particularly this conception of religious liberty that makes a distinction between the freedom to b believe and the freedom to manifest 
the uh, that belief in in public. When you have the elements, they actually encode the 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 privilege, the sovereign privilege of the state to intervene in matters of of uh, religious life in the interest of 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 national identity and the na- interest of national norms. And these national this national identity, national norms are often predicated on the majoritarian values of the country. So, for example, whether, so regardless, but you know, Egypt may be Islamic. In the case of Greeks, which is another case that I examine in the European Court of Human Rights, where the majority religion is Greek Orthodox, or in the case of France, where the, the majority values are understood to be secular, even though in each one of these cases, the actual substance of those national values is understood to be different. It is, first of all, argued on the basis of, of majoritarian values. And secondly, in all of these instances, the state takes upon itself to regulate minority difference, um, uh, precisely based on the idea that it has, it is, uh, it has the legitimate right to intervene in the, in, uh, in the life of religious minorities. So in the final chapter of your book, uh, Sabah, you shift your focus from exploring uh, political secularism as a, a legal and political uh, structuration to exploring the idea of secularity or the attitudes, assumptions and dispositions that uh, constitute and are constitutive of secular power. And you do so through uh, exploring a controversy that ensued uh, uh, after the publication of a novel called Azazil. Uh, and you very interestingly show that uh, the two opposing, seemingly opposing sides uh, as part of this controversy, although they had differing positions, but both of them in some ways were indebted to a secular episteme and had very similar uh, notions and assumptions regarding uh, the interaction of history, temporality and scripture. So what was the Azazil controversy, if you could inform our listeners about that? And then uh, it could explain that argument of in what ways uh, uh, did this controversy bring into a central view, some of these uh, assumptions and attitudes, uh, which we might call um, our hallmarks of uh, secularity. Um, yes. Um, I mean, I, I just want to explain a little bit as to why I turned to secularity in the concluding chapter of the book, because the major, um, the rest of the chapters are concerned with political secularism. And just for your listeners, um, just as I um, try to uh, give a sense of what political secular, secularism consists in by secularity, I mean those sets of um, cultural assumptions, epistemological assumptions, um, ways of comportment, ways of uh, uh, relating to um, history, temporality, and the reading of scripture that those attributes, those cultural attributes um, and forms of subjectivity uh, and aesthetic appreciation that we associate with the, with the secular society. Now, secularity, therefore, is, is these, these sorts of, uh, these sorts of um, uh, sensibilities, ethical attitudes, propensities that cannot necessarily be apprehended through, or they're not necessarily encoded in the in the laws of a state. Uh, we can only get to them through the analysis of of cultural um, through cultural analysis and through analysis of intersubjective um, social relations and so on and so forth. So, uh, I think uh, that's political secularism, secularism as a as a political 
arrangement often presumes and depends upon um, secular uh, secular epistemologies and secular values and cultural norms, and um, yet those norms are not necessarily explicitly defined in discourses of the state or discourses of law and so on. So that's why I was interested in really going to thinking about secularity, the background set of assumptions uh, that inform the larger sort of more legalistic status project of secularism. And so for this, I turn to the analysis of uh, this very uh, vitriolic debate that followed the publication of the novel Azazil, Azazil was, um, was, was an Arabic uh, novel that was uh, published in 2007-2008. And it's a novel that actually focuses on the 4th um, uh, century um, um, life of, of a 4th century monk who is uh, just recently converted to Christianity uh, before the emergence of Coptic Christianity, of course, um, I mean, uh, Coptic Christianity had not been consolidated at this time. And this monk's, uh, um, and so it's a story about this monk's life. And, um, and it is, he, and through this novel, the author, um, actually, uh, tells us about, uh, about, uh, the inherent violence, not only of Christianity, but of religion as such. Now, uh, the reason this period is very important to the consolidation of the Coptic Orthodox Church is that it actually um, centers um, at a time when when Christianity was just coming into its own, um, both in the you know after a very long persecution by the Roman Empire, but also um, uh, into its own in Egypt against um, the, the 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 pagan. Um, you know, the, the Greek pagan um, form of life that permeated the society at the time. And so many of the events and debates that the novel focuses on is actually one that um, those events are very, very important to the history, to the early history of the Coptic, Coptic Orthodox Church. And so when the to- novel was published, the Coptic Orthodox Church actually really uh, was furious at this novel. It, it, the church was in part furious because what the author, who is who is a Muslim, um, uh, Zidan is his name. So Zidan, the, the, the church was primarily really uh, very furious at Zidan because on the one hand, and the church saw in this novel um, sort of... Uh, a kind of critique that they have been hearing of Coptic Orthodox Christianity since, since Protestant times. And in fact, many of the stock events and figures that the novel um, narrates that, that are very much grounded in and draw upon that Protestant um, interpretation of Coptic Orthodox Christianity is ultimately uh, a lesser form of Christianity as one that is backward looking and so on and so forth. And so the church very interestingly released a response to this novel, 400 page, um, 400 page response in which one of the leading figures uh, within the Coptic uh, clergy uh, uh, actually uh, uh, take apart the interpretation that the novel arrives at of these these seminal figures 
and these seminal events within the history of the Coptic Orthodox Church. And so on the, and what I was really intrigued by was that on the one hand, they, the, 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 the author of the novel and the church seemed to be offering very different interpretations of what these debates were about and what some of these uh, events were about. And yet the evidence for which they reached uh, in order to substantiate their claim was ironically, epistemologically very similar. They both, um, you know, so, so Zidane, the author, and the Coptic Orthodox Church both drew upon history as a very empiricist notion of history and a very um, and a, and a secular conception of time in which the events themselves unfolded uh, were implanted in this in this in this futuristic um, open ended secular time they were uh, analyzed for the for their for for their empirical veracity and the claim that these interpretations were were correct ones whether that of the of the novel or the that of the church themselves actually were indebted to this very empiricist conception of history and the secular conception of temporality. And that is the ground that they shared. So their battle was not over the epistemological presumptions of history and epistemological status of temporality. But in fact, it was the shared conception of history and temporality that allowed them to offer very different interpretations. And so this is partly the debate through which I really try to think of how Secularity conditions the very backdrop uh, assumptions uh, through which religion must translate itself into the present, even when it seems to take very opposite uh, forms. Uh, so, Saba, uh, this book, of course, has been recently published. And uh, what do you anticipate as, say, one or two major possible uh, misinterpretations uh, of this book? And how would you? correct or respond to those uh, misinterpretations. Uh, could you anticipate a couple or uh, and uh, address uh, address those? Um, it, it's hard for me to do that right now. Um, you know, misinterpretations always surprise authors. <laughs> <laughs> we, we tend to think we have an authorial um, clarity that perhaps our prose doesn't always... Um, boast off. So I am I'm looking forward to those misinterpretations. Um, I suppose one, uh, one common misinterpretation may be that what I have done is to, sh- uh, what I've argued is to, is that uh, secularism is nothing but a form of majoritarian tyranny or a form of majoritarian religiosity that is then, um, brought to bear upon and unfairly discriminate against religious minorities. And the claim would be that, well, but secularism is a lot more than that. And I think this, uh, this, this might uh, be a misreading of the book. Um, and uh, to which I would simply respond that I do not consider secularism to just simply be um, uh, a negative force in the life of the inhabitants of either the Middle East or elsewhere. Uh, and I do not simply equate it with majoritarian values, although I think it's very important for us to think about how majoritarian values come to be encoded within secularism. Um, uh, so, uh, and that's why I go to all sorts of other things, such as uh, the Azazil controversy, and also analyze the structure of family law, 
um, and uh, and uh, precisely in order to think um, not just simply within the majoritarian register, but within the larger background set of assumptions that majority and minority religions must subscribe by in order to make themselves legible. Another possible misinterpretation would be that I... I'm too critical of secularism or that I want to do away with secularism. And I think this would be very unfortunate. And I think I say this in my book very, uh, very clearly that at various points that I do not think that secularism can be done away with. I think secularism is a condition like capitalism, like modernity that we have to live with. And so the struggle is to try to see what are the elements of secularism that create conditions of inequality uh, religious inequality, even as we, despite the fact that secularism is understood to be the best arrangement for producing religious equality. Those of us who want to make this claim to religious equality more robust within secularism must therefore contend with the forms of inequality it has engendered. If we continue to think of secularism as nothing but a portender and an insurer of religious in, uh, religious equality, then I think we we then do therefore fail to see the form of unique forms of inequalities that it has engendered, and therefore make it better. And if those of us who are interested in making uh, secularism actually more robust in terms of its delivery for religious uh, religious equality, must therefore contend and and rectify the forms of inequalities it has generated. And the first step towards doing that is to see what its operations are and how it manifests inequality. So as we're coming to the end of our, our time, Sabah, could you briefly share with us uh, what is the next project? Uh, what is the next uh, project that we could uh, uh, expect to uh, learn from you and read from uh, from you? Well, um, I mean, this is very exploratory at this point. I don't know what form it will take, but I'm really interested in the uh, in the Shia Sunni conflict that has now become so characteristic of the Muslim world across geographic divides. And to me, that is a very, very, uh, very some development, um, and it's it's fairly new. And so I'm really interested in trying to think about this latest, um, what I think is a very divisive and ultimately a very uh, potentially um, destructive, um, you know, uh, schism that has developed within Islam. And I would like to do it um, in the context uh, of South Asia this time and trying to think of more broadly the place of Shia in South Asia, but also how that's, their status has been transformed, and how it's integrally linked to the politics of the Middle East. So I want to think across um, regions and across histories, but I would like to do it through the lens of the Shia Sunni conflict. So Religious Difference in a Secular Age, a Minority Report by Professor Sabah Mahmood, published by Princeton University Press in 2015. Uh, thank you so much, Sabah, for this stunning book, for giving us so much to think about, to wrestle with, and for such a comprehensive and incisive analysis of your book uh, today in this conversation. Uh, uh, thank you so much, and I'm sure our listeners also uh, would really have benefited uh, from uh, your uh, wonderfully articulate and uh, incisive comments. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for conducting this interview. I really appreciate it. So this was my conversation with Professor Sabah Mahmood about a brilliant new book. 
Religious Difference in a Secular Age, a Minority Report. Thank you so much for listening. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep tuning into New Books in Islamic Studies.